you get married, you don't really know what to expect. Doesn't matter how long you've been dating, how long you've been going together. I'm, I mean, I've met couples that they went together seven or eight years, got married, got divorced, right? And so you really don't know what to expect. And that's really true when you marry a young, when you um, uh, actually marry, when you marry a young lady that you propose to on the second date and you tie the knot with six months later. That's what happened to me. I proposed to Teresa on the second date. We married six months later. And, uh, you know, talk about not knowing exactly what you're going to get when you get married. And I want to just tell you that uh, this next year we'll celebrate our 40th anniversary. And I can tell you that Teresa has exceeded all of my expectations. Now, I knew that when I married Teresa that I was getting a beautiful girl. I knew I was getting a sweet girl. I did not know that she'd be such a wonderful fixer-upper. I did not know she was going to be a, a, a tremendous money manager. I did not know she'd be such a wise interior decorator. I did not know she'd be such a fantastic cook. And I have to admit, uh, quite frankly, that at least in my house, she's made a super commander-in-chief. Um, the happiest times of my life, you know when I'm the happiest? When I just follow her directions. When I just do whatever she tells me to do, I'm so happy. Things seem to go so much better when I just kind of get behind her and just, you know, follow her and do whatever she says. But in all seriousness, she's not just been the girl of my dreams, honestly. She really has far, far gone beyond my wildest dreams of what a wife could possibly be. Now, you multiply by infinity what I just said about Teresa, and that is so much more true of Jesus. My son, Jonathan, wrote a great book entitled, Jesus is Better Than You Imagine. And, and I'm not saying it just because he's my son, but it really is a great title of a great book because, quite frankly, Jesus has exceeded all expectations. And that's really what we've been trying to say in this series that we've called 3D Christmas that Jesus really has gone far above and beyond all that we even think about at Christmas time and all people talk about at Christmas time and all people sing about at Christmas time. And I want to tell you, I'm up on Christmas. I, I, I tell you this every year. It is my favorite time of the year. I love it. I know some people don't get into it. Some people, you know, wish it never came. I love it. It never gets old. My sweet mother loved Christmas. I mean, loved it. And right up to the time she passed this year, almost 95 years of age, she was excited, as excited about Christmas when she was in her late or uh, uh, early 90s as she was when she was a little girl growing up. I, I remember telling her one time, not too long before she passed, in fact, it was in the Christmas season last year, I remember telling her, Mom, I want to be just like you. I want to be, I don't ever want to lose the joy of Christmas. I mean, if I live to be, you know, as old as you, and, and I don't expect to, but if I were to live to be in my 90s, I want to be just as excited about Christmas when I'm in my 90s as I am today, and I really do, but I do have one problem with Christmas, and the problem that I have is not with Christmas, but it's how we see Christmas. It's sometimes how I see Christmas, and, and, and let me tell you what I mean. We tend to look at Jesus most of the time in, in kind of one or two dimensions. As a matter of fact, it is seen in two equally short-sighted things that we do with Jesus every year, and we do it a lot. For example, except for one Sunday a year, and that's called Easter, we have this tendency to leave Jesus on a cross. And then we come to Christmas, and we have this tendency to leave Jesus in a cradle. 
And the truth of the matter is you can't just see Jesus or Christmas in one dimension or even two. Christmas is in 3D. And I want to just go back and give you a quick review. We talked about the very first dimension of Christmas two weeks ago. You remember I told you that the first dimension of Christmas began with a promise that was made in the Garden of Eden when God himself made a promise that he was going to send someone to undo the mess that Adam and Eve got us into, that he was amazingly going to take a descendant of the very couple that plunged this world into sin and into death, and he was going to undo what they did, and he was going to take care of our sin problem and our death problem. That was the first dimension. Then we said the second dimension of Christmas was that anticipation and that expectation that was manufactured because of that promise. And we talked about how the, 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 that there were these Jewish people that for hundreds and thousands of years kept anticipating and expecting this Messiah to come. And we talked about how the second dimension of Christmas was fulfilled when that little baby was born and laid in that manger 2,000 years ago. And most of the time at Christmas, that's where we lead the story. But what we've been trying to work up to in this series is that's not the only two dimensions of Christmas. Christmas is in 3D. And there is a third dimension of Christmas that, quite frankly, is very rarely ever talked about, very rarely ever thought about, very rarely ever sung about. But in actuality, it is that third dimension that shows us that the promise was kept. It is that third dimension that shows us we should not be disappointed that this Jesus was a baby that exceeded all expectations. And for that third dimension... I want us to turn this morning to a, a very unlikely candidate that you would have thought would be the guy to tell us about this third dimension. Let me tell you why. We're going to look today at what a Jewish rabbi said about Jesus. Now, this Jewish rabbi was a rabbi through and through. He was Jewish through and through. And from the first time he heard the name Jesus, he hated it. He hated the thought of Jesus. He hated the idea of Jesus. He certainly did not believe in the story of Christmas. He didn't buy the virgin birth. He didn't buy the star. He didn't buy the wise men. He didn't buy any of that stuff. But he experienced the third dimension of Christmas personally. And because he saw and experienced the third dimension of Christmas, he allows us to see Christmas in 3D. And I want to show you what he said. He wrote a letter to a Roman province called Galatia. And in this letter, it's found in a book called Galatians. If you brought a copy of God's Word or an iPhone or a smart pad, I want you to turn to the book of Galatians. All right, Galatians chapter 4. And I want us to look today at what I'm going to call the third dimension of Christmas. This Jewish rabbi was named Paul. And as I told you, for many, many years in Paul's life, he hated the idea of Christmas. He didn't believe in Christmas. He didn't believe anything about the Christmas story. He didn't believe that Jesus really was raised from the dead. He didn't believe Jesus was who he said he was. He didn't see Jesus in any dimension. And all of a sudden, he personally experiences this third dimension of Christmas, and everything radically changed. And let me tell you where we're going to go with this message. If you were to go out to the mall today and shop, probably some of you, maybe you're like me, still behind, and maybe you're going to do that this afternoon. But if you were to go out to the mall, you go out to just the street, and you were to just stop the average person walking, and you were to say to that person, can you tell me the story of Christmas? If they know the story, they would probably start with um, angels, 
And they talk about shepherds, and they talk about mangers, and they talk about stars, and they talk about wise men, and, and they would talk about, you know, the heavenly choirs, and they were talking about all of these things, and they would tell you basically the historical story of Christmas. And if they know anything about the Bible, they would say to you, if you want more information, there are two books that talk about it, a gospel called Matthew and a gospel called Luke. And if you'll go read Matthew and Luke, they will tell you when Christmas happened, they'll tell you how Christmas happened, and they'll tell you what happened that very first Christmas. They do that, and they do it well. But then in this letter in Galatians, we're going to read this morning, in this letter that was written about 50 AD, it was written about 50 years after Jesus was born, about 20 years after Jesus died, this man named Paul he doesn't give us the historical version of the story. Matthew and Luke have already done that. He gives us the theological version of the story. Paul comes along and he says, look, if you want to know when Christmas happened, go read Luke and Matthew. If you want to know how it happened, go read Matthew and Luke. If you want to know what happened at that Christmas, if you want to know the details, go read them. I'm not going to deal with that. I want to tell you why it happened. I want to tell you what Christmas really means. I want to talk to you about the third dimension of Christmas because it is that third dimension that explains why the first Christmas was the greatest Christmas of all. So I'm going to put up on the screen right now kind of what I want you to take out the door because this really is the third dimension of Christmas. Listen to this. Jesus came as a child of an earthly mother so we could become children of a heavenly father. That's Christmas. Jesus came as a child of an earthly mother so we can become children of a heavenly father. Now you're going to see this morning why Christmas goes beyond the financial. It goes beyond the material. It actually goes to the spiritual, and it actually goes to the eternal. This is what Christmas in 3D really tells us. Number one, because of Christmas, I can enjoy spiritual freedom. Because of Christmas, I can enjoy spiritual freedom. Now, we're in Galatians chapter 4. Let's read together in verses 4 through 5. But when the set time, that's important, when the set time had fully come, God sent his son. So he's talking about the first Christmas. God sent his son, born of a woman, Mary, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Now, we don't know the exact day when Jesus was born, okay? People ask that question all the time, and, and I don't need to get into the details of how we chose December the 25th. It seems like a good day to me. I've enjoyed it. But we don't really know what day his birthday was. And, and, and well, here's what we do know according to what Paul said. It was a day that God had marked on his calendar because he said, when the set time had come. In other words, from the time that God first hung the first planet in space, from the time that God lit up the first star, from the time that God put the first breath in a human being, God had this day highlighted on his iPad. And on his iPad on this date, he had written down birth of Jesus. This world had a divine appointment, and when God makes an appointment, God's never late. God always shows up. Because remember, we've been talking about this for hundreds and thousands of years. These Jewish people, the Jewish nation, they, they had been waiting on this Messiah. 
And even though they didn't know it, not only were they waiting on the Messiah, the world was waiting on a Savior, the universe was waiting on a Lord, and at Christmas, the wait was over. God sends a son. We know that story. He brings him into this world through the womb of a woman. Why is that such a big deal? Because Jesus came just like all of us came into this world. We all came into this world through the womb of our mother. So did Jesus. Why does Paul let us know that? He wants us to know that Jesus became just like us. The Son of God became the Son of Man. Now, here's what's amazing. This is a Jewish rabbi writing this. For a Jewish rabbi, not only to write this, but to believe what he was writing is astounding. Because even though every Jewish rabbi was believing and they were waiting on the coming Messiah, it never occurred to them that this Messiah would be God in human flesh. Amazingly, Paul is writing something that never entered into his mind. No rabbi ever thought about this. No rabbi ever thought about this. And, and I'm, I'm probably sure, I'm pretty sure that Paul probably, as he was writing this, going, I can't believe I'm writing this down. I can't believe that I'm actually writing down that God came in human flesh. He came to be just like us. Well, we all know that story, but that again is just one dimension of Christmas. Because now Paul says, let me tell you why that baby came. Now watch this. He came to redeem those under the law. All right, time out. So who are those under the law? Now here's what most people say. Well, Jews, they're under the law. No, that's, that's half right. Anybody want to take a guess who's under the law? Anybody want to just guess? Yeah, we all are. He's talking about all of us. We're all born under God's law. Everybody on this planet is under God's law. Whether they believe in God or not, whether they even know anything about God or not, they are under God's law. Just as there are physical laws of the universe that we're all under, like gravity, there are spiritual laws of the universe we are all under. Now, here's the problem. No one stayed under the law. We've all gotten out from under the law. We have all broken God's law. No one's ever perfectly obeyed the law. We've all broken that law. Now, what we call breaking the law, God calls sin. And that's why it's so foolish to think that the way you can have a relationship with God and the way you can be right with God is just keep the law. Obey the commandments. I cannot tell you how many times I'll ask someone, do you believe you're right with God? Yeah, I believe I'm right with God. Why do you think you're right with God? Because I try to keep his commandments. I try to live by his commandments. And, 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 and I don't mean to be ugly or unkind, but it's so foolish. Let me tell you why that's so foolish. So you're trying to get right with God by keeping God's law, right? Yeah, I am. We can't even keep our own laws. I mean, if you, if, if you don't mind admitting this, anybody here care to raise their hand who's ever gotten a traffic ticket? Anybody here want to be honest enough to admit you run a stop sign? Anybody come to church this morning? I'll raise my hand. Anybody come to church this morning and broke the speed limit? Can I just be, can I tell you something? Can I just, I hope there's no state patrol watching this this morning. I'm just going to be honest. I never abide by the speed limit. I, I, I never. You know what I do? I have a habit. Wherever I am, I set my speedometer at 10 minutes, at 10 miles an hour over the speed limit. Because I've found out from several police officers, they don't even fool with you at 10 miles and over. Right? They just don't fool with you. They'll wave at you as you go by. 
So if it's 35, I'm going 45. 55, I'm going 65. I was going to the airport to pick up Jonathan yesterday at 70 miles an hour. What do you think I'm doing? Anybody want to guess? I'm doing 80 miles an hour and having a ball. Didn't even feel guilty about it. Loved it. We don't even keep our own laws. I mean, so, let me ask you this. How many of you ever, here have ever broken a New Year's resolution? The only New Year's resolution I've ever kept in my life is one I made 10 years ago when I made a New Year's resolution. I'd never make any more New Year's resolutions. That's the only one I've ever kept perfectly. So we talk about trying to keep God's law. We can't even keep our own. We break laws all the time, but you know, there's a problem. There's an old saying. When you do the crime, you pay the time. When you do the crime, you pay the time. So when you do break the law and you do get caught, who do you owe? You owe the law. You may owe the law a fine. You may owe the law jail time. You may owe the law community service, but you owe the law and you've got to pay for your crime. Now listen, what is true in our world is true in God's world. Sin, every time we break God's law, and we break it all the time, it puts us in debt to the God of the universe. Because every one of us in this world, we owe God one thing, perfection. But nobody's perfect. We already know that. So every day we pile up this sin debt. And that sin debt is so big, you can't pay it off. You can't even bail yourself out. The best lawyer in the world cannot help you. And by the way, it doesn't matter which law you've broken. It doesn't matter how many laws you've broken. It doesn't even matter how many times you've broken the law. James, the brother of Jesus, indicts us with this. Listen to this. Here's what James said. He said, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. Now, let me tell you what James said. How many commandments did God give to, to, to the Jews originally? How many? I'm holding it up. Ten, all right? Just see if you're awake, all right? Ten. God gave ten commandments. You keep nine of the commandments. Now, in school, you'd say, wow, I got a grade of 90. You break one commandment, you keep nine. What does God say your grade is? Zero. You fluck. God, as far as God's concerned, if you've broken one of the commandments, in effect, you are guilty of breaking them all. Let me put it to you this way. You know the difference between a misdemeanor and a felony. In God's law, in God's eyes, there are no misdemeanors. There are only felonies. If you break the law, you've broken all of the law. And when you owe a debt that you can't pay, you only need one thing and one thing only. Nothing else will help you. Nothing else will get you out of the mess. Nothing else will take care of your debt. The only thing you need when you owe a debt you can't pay, you need redemption. You need to be redeemed. Paul just told us that Jesus came to redeem us. You know what that word redeem literally means? It means to pay a debt completely off. That's what it means. See, Jesus did not just come at Christmas to bail us out. So we could go break the law all over, all over again. That's not what Jesus does. He came to pay the entire sin debt off. And he frees us from spiritual bondage once and for all. You say, wait a minute. How did he do that? Real simple. That's one reason he came. That's one reason he came just like us. That's one reason he came to live just like us. He perfectly kept the law. 
He did the one thing none of us has ever been able to do. He stayed under the law. Never broke one, one law. He never, I mean, he never broke the law in word. He never broke the law in thought. He never broke the law in deed. He didn't owe a debt he couldn't pay. So he paid a debt he didn't owe for all of us who owed a debt he could not pay. And he completely paid that sin debt off once and for all. And because of Christmas, we can enjoy spiritual freedom. Because of Christmas, we can wake up every single morning and know we are debt-free. Because of Christmas, every morning when you look into the eyes of God, you can say, Lord, I'm so sorry about what I did yesterday. I'm so sorry about what I did last night. Or you can even say, I'm so sorry about what I did today. And you can know that God will look at you and say, that's all right. You don't owe me anything. Because Jesus paid it. See, because of Christmas, I've been redeemed. I can enjoy spiritual freedom. Now, you know what I could do? Some of you probably wish I would. I could just close the Bible and say, all right, let's pray. Everybody dismiss. Let's go home. Let's go eat dinner. Go Christmas shopping, right? But it gets better than that. Even a lot, I've heard a lot of preachers, and they just leave it right there, but it gets better than that. Listen to this. Because of Christmas, not only do I enjoy spiritual freedom, but because of Christmas, I can enter a supernatural family. Now, listen to what Paul says. Go back. Listen, this gets, gets even better because Jesus didn't just come to get us out of jail. He didn't just come to forgive us of our sins. He didn't just come to free us from spiritual bondage. Keep reading. He says this in verse 5. Jesus came that we might receive adoption to sonship. Now, I just want to let that kind of linger there just for a minute. If you'd lived 2,000 years ago and you'd been reading this, you would have stopped. You would have put the scroll down and you would have had to think about this. It would have really resonated in a unique way 2,000 years ago. Let me tell you why. See, normally when we think about adoption, who do we think about adopting? We think about adopting little babies, right? We think about adopting little children. That's kind of what, you know, what we think about. Well, in the first century, the adoption of babies was very, very rare. As a matter of fact, in Jewish terminology, there was no term for adoption. Adoption was primarily a Roman custom. But here's, what, here's where they're different. Romans, by and large, did not usually adopt babies or, or very small children. When a Roman would adopt someone, he would adopt a full-grown adult. And as a matter of fact, it was really only the wealthy people that would ever adopt anybody anyway. Now, let me tell you how this would work, and let me tell you why. Rich people back in that day, they would have children, but... Like a lot of families, there'd be a lot of dysfunction in the family. And the most important thing to a wealthy Roman is that he would have a son that he could trust with the estate that he would inherit. And if he felt like that he had a son or he had sons that were untrustworthy, here's what he would do. He would go out into the marketplace and he would find, usually be the, the grown man of a poor family or someone like that, but he would go out and he would find someone that had a great reputation, someone that was a fine young man, someone that your daughter would want to marry, someone that had a sterling reputation, and he would go out and he would find that guy and, or that young man, and then what he would do is he would pay the father for the privilege of adopting that man as his own son so he could manage his affairs. He would adopt him. Now, if indeed, after he adopted that boy, if the boy proved worthy, if the boy, if the boy really proved like he's a good guy, I can trust him, he'll take care of things after I'm gone and after I die, he would not only make him equal with his own children, 
He would actually raise him above his own biological children, and he would give him the entire estate. Now, here's what's amazing. God looked at us, not when we were good, but when we were bad. God looked at us, not when we were righteous, but when we were sinful. God looked at us, not when we were worthy, but when we were unworthy. And God said, I'll take you. I want to adopt you. I want you to come home with me. I want to be your father. And I want you to be my child. You think about that. It would have been more than enough if God just wiped the slate clean. If God just paid my debt off. If God just got us out of jail and set us free. But he didn't stop there. He doesn't just give us forgiveness. He gives us his name. He doesn't just get us out of jail. He takes us home. And he doesn't just take us home. He gives us a title deed to the whole place. It's an incredible story. Listen, if you're an adopted parent and you're listening to this or you've ever been adopted, you know just how wonderful this is that I'm talking about. Because let me tell you something about adoption. Adoption is always intentional. It's, it's always on purpose. Nobody, I've never heard of anybody adopting because they had to. People adopt because they want to. I've heard of unplanned pregnancies. I've heard of unwanted pregnancies. I have never heard of an unwanted or an unplanned adoption. People adopt because they want to. But God's adoption process is even deeper. Listen to what else Paul says. God says, I not only want to adopt you into my family. I not only want to make you one of my children. I not only want to become your father. It's better than that. You're not only going to come to live with me. I'm going to come live in you. Because I want you to have the same intimate relationship with me that my own son Jesus had with me. So listen to this next verse. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. Now this, this is a verse, every time I read it, I just, I can't get over this. Because of Christmas, we can call God the creator of the universe, the God who could destroy this world with a snap of his fingers, the God who is the thrice holy God of Israel, we can call this God Daddy. Daddy. That, that's what the word Abba means. You know, Jesus, by the way, the word Abba is an Aramaic. It's not a Greek word. It's an Aramaic word. Jesus didn't speak Greek. He spoke Aramaic. And there is no Greek equivalent for Daddy. And the most intimate term that you could use back in that day for a parent was the word Abba. As a matter of fact, it was the favorite term that Jesus used for God when he would talk to his father. Over 200 times in the Gospels, you know what God called Jesus, the Son of God called God? He called him Father. You go to all the prayers of ancient Judaism, you go back and study them, you'll never find any Jewish rabbi that would ever refer to God as Abba. You'll never see a, hear, hear a Jewish rabbi call God Father, no self-respecting Jew would ever address God as Father. And yet, here's a Jewish rabbi, got a PhD in Judaism, was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. And all of a sudden, he is now calling God his daddy. And because of Christmas, see, we can too. And see, this is what I want you to see. This, this, I hope this changes something for you this morning. We're not just a bunch of people. 
They get together once a week and hear a guy get up here and tell you something. That's not what we are. We are a family. Every week we come together, it is a family reunion. We're a part of God's family. Every one of us in this room, every one of us that are listening right now, if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you're sitting next to someone who knows Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, they're more than just your buddy. They're more than just your friend. They are your brother. They are your sister. They are a part of a family that will never, ever end because we've all been adopted. I, I, I read this story the other day. It's one of the most incredible stories. I've, it's a true story, incredible story about two men. One man was named Gary, and one man was named Steve. And they lived in Fairfield, Connecticut. Now, here's, here's the interesting story about, about, about Steve and Gary. They were the best of friends. They were joined at the hip. They were absolutely inseparable. They, and, and in fact, people used to talk about them. They'd say, you know, you guys act just like brothers. You look alike. You talk alike. You think alike. Gary served as Steve's best man in his wedding. Steve was there for Gary when his dad died. They had been best friends for 25 years, best buddies, did everything together, went on vacation together, just had this incredible, deep relationship. And then something happened that caused everyone to finally understand why they had such an, this unusually close relationship. One day, Gary was at home and his phone rings and it was a caseworker. And, 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 and evidently, Gary had expressed an interest in adoption. And so she had called to ask him some personal questions. Well, he thought she was calling to know if he was interested in adoption and maybe he had someone that would be a candidate for them you know, to adopt. But that's not why she was calling. The reason she was calling was not talk about him adopting a child. She was calling to talk about his adoption. Because you see, for 51 years, he had just assumed he was the biological child of his parents, Benjamin and Marjorie, but he learns he was adopted. Well, in the course of the conversation, they were talking, and Gary happened to mention, you know, I've got a best friend, Steve, and, and, and he's adopted, and, and he knows he's adopted. And so the caseworker asked for his phone number, and so she phoned him. And she got to talking to him. And after she talked to him for a little while, she said to Steve, she said, um, you better be sitting down. And he said, well, well, why is that? She said, because you have a brother. And he said, really? He said, who is that? She said, your best friend, Gary. 25 years. They're best friends. But they acted like brothers thought like brothers, talked like brothers, walked like brothers, did everything like brothers. Why? They were brothers. Just didn't know it for 25 years. And so many people, I think, I think we walk into a building like this, and we think it's, kind of like a, it's the same kind of a meeting that you'd have with the Boy Scouts or the PTA. This is not that kind of a meeting. This is a family reunion. We've all been adopted in God's family. And when you come into any church, this is what's so beautiful. You go to any church in the, in the world as a believer in Jesus Christ, and if you meet other believers in Jesus Christ, you don't just come into a building of acquaintances and friends. You come into a family because we've all been adopted as God's children, as brothers and sisters. You say, oh, man, that's great. Now you can close your sermon. No, I'm not done yet. It gets better. Because of Christmas, not only do I enjoy spiritual freedom, because of Christmas, not only have I entered into this supernatural family, but because of Christmas, I can expect eternal 
favor. Now, now watch this. Here's the end result. This is the climax of Christmas in 3D. You ready? Watch this. So you are no longer a slave, that is a slave to God's law. You are God's child. Now watch this. And since you are his child, God has made you also an, what's that word? An heir. God has made you an heir. Let me just stop. I want to keep that up on the screen just for a minute. I'll tell people I witness to sometimes, we'll talk about, uh, they'll, they'll say things like, well, I'm not really a religious person, or I'm not really into religion, or you've got your religion, I've got mine. And I'll, I'll so often tell people, you, first of all, you don't understand Christianity is not a religion. A lot of people think it is. Christianity is not a religion. Buddhism is a religion. Hinduism is a religion. Islam is a religion. Judaism is a religion. Christianity is not a religion. And if you want to know the difference between religion and Christianity, it is right here in this verse. Let me explain it to you. Religion is all about rules. Give me any religion you want to. Every religion has got its rules. And if you want to be right and you want to be considered orthodox and you want to be considered a good person in that religion, you've got to keep the rules. You've got to obey the rules. Christianity has nothing to do with rules. It is all about a relationship, the relationship of a child that's been adopted by a father. Now, here's the difference. Religion produces slaves. Christianity produces sons. Religion is all about performance. Keep this law. Don't break this law. Do good. Don't do evil. Mind your P's, mind your Q's, obey the rules, and you might be right. Christianity is all about position. You are the son, you are the daughter of a heavenly father that has adopted you. But as a child of God, you're even more. Listen to it again. Since you are his child, God has also made you an heir. Now, you know the drill, right? Slaves inherit nothing. Sons inherit everything. So this Jewish rabbi comes along and says, you're not going to believe what I'm about to tell you. God, Christmas tells us that God has not only set us free, God has not only adopted us into his family, God has not only taken us home, God has given us the entire estate. When you give your life to Jesus, listen, when you give your life to Jesus, he gives you everything he owns, and he owns everything. My grandson, Harper, he loves to come to the, if you've ever been to my home, in my basement, I have a Georgia room, okay? And you really ought to see it. It's a pretty cool room. If you don't like Georgia, it'll make you like Georgia if you come to my room. But I've got this Georgia room, and, 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 and he loves to go down to the basement because that's where the Xbox is. We have an Xbox, and he, he's got games that he plays on the Xbox, and he loves me to go down there. We've got a game called NCAA football. And, and Harper loves, this is what I love about Harper. We set the game up so the number one team on the game is Georgia, right? We've, we've kind of rigged the game that way. So everything for them is, you know, their offense is 100, defense is 100, you know, passing's 100, running, everything's 100. And then we take like, say, we'll take Florida, the Florida Gators. Right? They're at the bottom. I mean, they, they, they can't run, they can't throw, they can't do anything but cheat. That's all they can do. So, you know, so we, we are. Well, he always wants me to be Florida. 
And he wants to be Georgia. You know, he, he beat me the other day at halftime. It's 49 to nothing. He's beat, having a good time. Now, if I start beating him, he quits, right? But if he, if he beat me, everything's fine. We were down there not too long ago, I don't know, several months ago. And just out of the blue, he said, Pop, he said, you know what I love about this Georgia room? And, you know, I thought I was going to be, you know, playing games. And I said, no, Harper, what? And he pointed over to this big trophy case that I have. I've got all this Georgia memorabilia. And he pointed to all the pictures on the wall. And, and, and he looked at all these Georgia knickknacks. He just kind of said, you see that, see that, and you see that? And I said, yeah. He said, you know why I love the Georgia room, Pop? I said, why? He said, because it's all mine. It's all mine. It belongs to me. Because I've told him everything I have belongs to him. Now, listen. God's already signed your adoption papers. But unlike most children who get adopted, there's a little bit of a difference. God signed your adoption papers, but it takes two signatures for you to be adopted. You got to sign it too. You got to put your name on the dotted line. And in just a moment, I'm going to ask some of you who are listening right now by way of computer or watching this on television or right here on our campus, on our Mill Creek campus, I'm going to ask some of you to sign your adoption papers to enjoy Christmas in 3D so you can gain your spiritual freedom and you can enter that supernatural family and you can experience that eternal love that God wants to give all of us. But before I do that, let me just close with this. I love this story. I don't think I've ever told you this. But there was this wealthy, wealthy, very wealthy Roman. And he had a very faithful and capable slave named Marcellus. Well, unfortunately, he also had a son who was very irresponsible. He was wild. He was unteachable. So when this wealthy Roman died and his will was open, it was found that he had left all of his estate to his slave, Marcellus. He left it all to him. Well, the son, as you can imagine, was very angry. But then they read the rest of the will. And the rest of the will stated that the son could choose one item from the estate, and then the will would be settled. So they, the judge looked at the son, and he said, okay, your father said you could have any one thing from the estate that you would like. What would you like to take? So the son thought for a moment. He said, let me make sure I understand. My dad said I could have any one thing in this estate. Is that correct? He said, that's correct. He said, uh, and everything in this estate has been left to Marcellus. Is that correct? He said, that's correct. With a big smile on his face, he said, okay, I'll take Marcellus. Because he knew if I take Marcellus, I get it all. And I came to tell you, you talk about Christmas being unbelievable. That's Christmas in 3D. Let me tell you about Christmas. Let me tell you to in a way you'll never hear it, most any other place. A little baby is born 2,000 years ago. That little baby is laid in a manger. And that little baby has come to a Jewish nation that's been waiting on a Messiah. He's come to a world that's been waiting on a Savior. He's come to a universe that's been waiting on a Lord. But there's more in that cradle than just a baby. Because what that baby holds in his hands is the ability to redeem us from all of our sins and give us spiritual freedom. What that baby holds in his hands is some adoption papers that gives us the ability to enter into a supernatural family and not just call God creator, but call God our dad. And what that little baby has in his hands is a title deed to all of earth, 
all of heaven, everything in the universe, and everything God himself can afford to give us. All of that is in that cradle. And hopefully now you understand that's why we ought to see Christmas, not in 1D, not in 2D, but in 3D. And that's why we know this Jesus, he has exceeded all expectations. Let's pray together. With his bowed and with eyes closed. I, I don't know what else I could say to those of you who are watching, listening, those of you in this room, those at Mill Creek, I don't know what else I could say if you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, if you've never made that little baby your Lord and your Savior, if you've never ever really come to the realization the reason why that baby was born was to die, and the reason why he died was to save us from our sins and to pay for our sins, and the reason why he came back from the dead was to prove that he made the payment and God accepted the check. 